Welcome to the Green Tunnel, a podcast on the history of the Appalachian Trail. My name is Mills Kelly, and I'm your host. Before we start, I want to say something to the listeners who are paying for the premium version of our show. Actually, no one pays for our show because every podcast we create here at R2 Studios is free and always will be free. But shows like the Green Tunnel aren't free to create. We put a lot of time and money into bringing you our show, and so today I'm going to ask you to consider supporting our work with a donation. It's easy. Just go to our website, greentunnel.rrchnm.org, and click on the Become a Member link in the upper right corner. That will take you to a page where you can sign up for our newsletter, and there's a link to our donation page. On the donation page, you'll be able to donate, and you can learn what kinds of thank you gifts we have for our supporters. All of us on the team here would really appreciate your support. Now, on with the show. In today's episode, we're going to be talking all about the history of food, trail food that is, and how technological change over the past 100 years has really altered what hikers eat on the trail. Talk to any backpacker and they'll tell you that there are a few things they think about all the time. How much further do I have to walk today? Is it going to rain? Where's the next water source? But at the top of almost everyone's list is, what am I going to eat and when? Breakfast, snacks, lunch, snacks, dinner, and of course, snacks. I'm a lifetime section hiker, and I'm happy to admit that I think about food all the time when I'm hiking. And not just because I like to eat when I'm out in the woods. Food is the critical fuel for any successful hike. It helps us power through the miles, it gives us a smile at the end of a long day, and it keeps us warm at night. Hikers who don't consume enough calories in a day end up having a miserable time. The average long-distance hiker burns through 5,000 to 6,000 calories each day on the trail. That's a lot of calories. The quest for all those calories can have some pretty weird results. I once read an account of an AT thru-hiker in which the author described his recurrent dreams about butter. Eventually, he became so obsessed with butter that when he went into town to resupply, he bought two sticks, sat down outside the grocery store, and just ate both of them. Or, there's a time several years ago when I was at the Johns Hollow Shelter in Virginia. I was on a long section hike, and there were half a dozen thru-hikers there. One of them cooked up a pot of nor cheesy noodles, and as he took the pot off his little stove, he accidentally dumped the noodles onto the ground. A normal person would have shrugged, or cursed, and made something else. Instead, he sat cross-legged next to his noodles and just ate them off the ground. If it makes you feel any better, he didn't eat the last layer. You know, the ones actually touching the dirt. But that was his dinner, so he ate it. Or, there was the time in 2015 when I was at the Maupin Field Shelter, also in Virginia. One of the thru-hikers who shared the shelter that night did something I've never seen and hope to never see again. 
Just before leaving in the morning, he pulled a bottle of olive oil out of his pack and took a big slug off of it. And then there's Kitchen Sink. Kitchen Sink was one of the hikers we interviewed this summer about what they were eating during their hikes. I only eat Cliff Bars and uh, like Nature Valley Bars. That is that is my entire, that is your entire diet, diet out here. Um, and it's um, it's just so much easier not having to cook food when you're tired. You can pack so much more in your pack with that way. Um, and my body's like so um, in tune with the Cliff Bars uh, as far as like how they get processed because processed meats and uh, dairy out here and ramen noodles, they destroy me. Kitchen Sink probably eats more bars than the average hiker, but hikers do consume an awful lot of bars. They're convenient, they're filling, and they have a lot of protein. And you can buy them almost anywhere along the Appalachian Trail. But is eating so many bars a good plan? After talking to Kitchen Sink, I had to know. Was this a terrible idea? Was it genius? To find out, I spoke with two registered dietitians who work with athletes. Rachel Artis focuses on clinical nutrition, and Danny Bourgeois focuses on sports nutrition. Okay, so, Cliff Bars every day. Not a good thing, right, Rachel? I would say I think they're a great supplement. I wouldn't rely on them for primary energy sources. Danny explained the science behind why a diet rooted in protein bars probably isn't so great. I mean, you know, when we think about nutrition, it's simple. We need our carbs, fats, and proteins. But variety is truly the spice of life and the spice of nutrition, right? So if you're getting the same kind of quick carbs from bars that, you know, they, they still have some added sugar, which is great for endurance athletes, but variety gives us that freedom of having more micronutrients. Um, they're not too high in fiber. So yeah, I think my first reaction was just, Oh no. The most important thing I think that anyone starting with through hiking or starting an endurance sport is making sure that you know how to maintain your muscle, maintain your weight. Um, I, personally know a lot of through hikers who come back from the trails, like emaciated, they've lost so much weight because they didn't understand how much energy they're using each day. Um, so I can't imagine that even if you're eating five or six cliff bars, that's not, that's not sufficient. In his defense, I will say kitchen sink did finish his through hike last year. So the cliff bar diet worked for him, but still. The thing about those protein bars is that for the first half century of the Appalachian Trail, those quick and easy snack foods weren't available for the simple reason that they hadn't been invented yet. The first granola bars hit the shelves in 1975, exactly 50 years after work on the AT began. Before granola bars, there were Pop-Tarts, of course, which were first introduced in 1963. Of course, tasty treats like protein bars and Pop-Tarts, weren't invented for hikers in the first place. They were just two examples of the industrialization of food production in America that really took off after World War II. So from fields and orchards all over America come more and more Del Monte products. 
and all for processing in the most modern of canneries. Amy Bentley is a food historian at New York University who studies the changes in how people in the United States eat. Technological changes, like advances in food preservation, really transformed what Americans ate and why. The 1950s is the golden age of food preservation, the development of, of the suburbs, of proliferating supermarkets, supermarkets double in size, um, the number of items they stock increases dramatically. Uh, advertisers start advertising all of the products available and all of the little sweets and chips and all kinds of snack foods that have been um, preserved in one form of technology or another are just unleashed on the market. And it becomes, and, and people have money for the first time in 20 years, you know, from the Great Depression to the war. And so they have all this money, they have this pent up desire to consume, and there's all of these products available. And advertising helps, again, teach Americans how to consume this food and what to desire. So it's a really interesting moment that's just chock full of food advertising and novelty food items and the baby boomers, you know, eat it up uh, literally. A lot of things were happening all at the same time. Changes in food preservation, the spread of supermarkets, and the advertising industry's push to change the American diet. And they all happened at the very moment that backpacking was really taking off in the United States. Listening to Amy, it dawned on me that what hikers eat on the trail is and always has been governed by two imperatives. Provide the fuel needed for the hike and, as much as possible, replicate what we already eat at home. Better food preservation techniques really helped backpackers take their preferred meals along with them into the backcountry. It's no surprise that this would happen because food historians like Amy will tell you that foodways, the cultures that grow up around eating, are incredibly powerful and hard to change. We want to eat what we like and what we're used to. And to the degree that we can, we eat on the trail the same way we eat at home. This desire to eat on the trail the way that we eat at home is obvious if you look at some of the backpacking advice for hikers that I've found in the archives of the various AT clubs. Those archives contain what hikers used to call grub lists. I found a bunch from the 1920s, the 1930s, and the 1940s, and those old grub lists tell a very interesting story about what hikers ate before so many convenient high-calorie and lightweight options were available in their local supermarket. In the Appalachian Trail's first decades, hikers had to rely on what they could buy at their local grocery store. Advice for hikers in those old grub lists provide a window into how different long-distance backpacking was before the 1960s. We've posted some of those grub lists in our show notes. When you take a look at them, the first thing you notice is that the food was a lot heavier. These days, backpackers are advised to keep their food weight under a pound to a pound and a half per day. In the 1920s and the 1930s, the standard advice was to plan on around two and a half pounds a day. And here are just a few examples of what hikers were advised to carry for a week on the trail. Three pounds of bacon, 
one and a half pounds of ham, one pound of powdered soup, one pound of powdered milk, three and a half pounds of flour, one and a half pounds of cornmeal, three pounds of sugar, one and a half pounds of rice, a pound of raisins, and five herbswurst for something called dynamite soup. Then there was the matter of how they cooked that food. Your typical AT hiker carried a steel pan that could be used for frying bacon or baking biscuits, and a steel pot big enough to make soup. Lightweight backpacking stoves didn't appear on the market until 1955, so all those hikers had to cook over an open fire. Cooking over an open fire meant that they also had to carry a hatchet, or something that they called a hand axe, a kind of short-handled axe, to cut wood for their fires. So, in addition to heavy food, hikers carried very heavy gear to cook that food. I have to digress for just a minute to say that I bought a version of that first 1955 Swedish backpacking stove, the Svi-123, when I first started hiking on the Appalachian Trail in 1971. It still works just fine, and I take it with me from time to time when I hike. We have a short video in the show notes of that old stove firing up. When we showed those old grub lists to Amy Bentley, she pointed out that they were perfect examples of how hikers try to eat on the trail the same way they eat at home. It's trying to recreate just a very typical mainstream middle American diet um, with an eye toward uh, technologies of preservation and then how to... prepare it, presumably over a campfire in maybe a Dutch oven or a cast iron pan is my guess. For breakfast, you're probably going to have eggs that are reconstituted from the egg powder, um, bacon or ham, um, biscuits that are made from the the flour or corn, cornbread from the cornmeal and flour. Uh, I think there was some, um, yeah, baking powder, um, Crisco to fry everything in. Um, So that's going to be like a midday, a morning meal. Probably during the day, you're not going to stop. You're not going to stop to cook food. So the dried apples, dried apricots, raisins, chocolate come in handy um, as quick energy uh, dense kinds of foods. And then in the evening, you're going to break for camp make a fire and probably make a one pot soup or stew uh, with the beans, with the dehydrated vegetables, potatoes, uh, rice, powdered soups, bouillon cubes. It's gonna be some variation of of a similar type thing, a soup or a stew with rice um, or potatoes every night. And then you've got coffee tea, you're gonna have that uh, daily, um, some chocolate as a treat, Compared to a diet of cliff bars and pizza or cheeseburgers in towns along the trail, hikers in the first decades of the Appalachian Trail ate well. Very nutritious, very heavy and dense, which you're going to need if you're hiking on uh, the Appalachian Trail every day for miles. Before the Second World War, hikers packed raw ingredients and made fresh meals each time they cooked. I cringed at all the weight, but a three-pound slab of bacon... I could get behind that. You might be wondering, though, 
How hikers in the 1930s or the 1940s kept a big old slab of bacon in their pack without greasing up the entire thing. It turns out that Abercrombie & Fitch, which used to be the world's premier backpacking outfitter, sold something called a pork bag for just that purpose. A pork bag. By the 1930s, canned foods had begun to show up on those old grub lists. In the 1930s, you start to have the rise of brand names. So College Inn, Chicken a la King. So um, the 1920s and 30s is the rise of industrial food production. So mass produced foods um, that really take hold and even in the depression are very popular. As much as the advertising industry had an impact on what hikers could buy in their local stores or the stores they visited along the AT, it was the Second World War that really changed the way hikers ate. I guess I'm in. When do we eat? Well, what's your hurry? All you get now is beans. Army food is no longer a matter of beans and guesswork. Since the last war, nutrition has become a science. And our Army Quartermaster Corps uses that science in planning Army meals. Food correctly used means fighting strength for our soldiers and better health for civilians. The Army in particular was doing a lot of research and development in food preservation techniques. So microwaves, freeze-dried technologies, um, other kinds of shelf-stable TV dinners. I'm trying to think what else. Canned, you know, everything in a can um, was tried in order to package, be the best package the material, food materials to send overseas. And after the war, all of that technology was unleashed upon the American consumer. Those new food preservation techniques meant that backpackers could now eat on the trail the way they ate at home, but without carrying all those heavy foods. Less weight meant hiking was easier, which meant more people could imagine putting on a pack and taking off into the mountains for a few days, a few weeks, or even an entire hiking season. Beginning in the 1950s, hikers were able to purchase more and more dehydrated or freeze-dried foods. By the time I started hiking on the AT in the early 1970s, Mountain House freeze-dried meals had only been around for a couple of years. A year after I started hiking, a product hit the market that's been a staple of my hiking diet ever since. Lipton's Cup of Soup. Of course, these days, outfitters are filled with freeze-dried meal options. Lasagna, stews, breakfast skillets, even ice cream and cheesecake. You can buy them all. And just like those hikers in the early days of the AT, you can take your preferred meals with you on the trail. And as the population of hikers has become more diverse, so have the meal choices. These days, you can get risotto, pad thai, or freeze-dried pho. Jennifer Sism is the CEO and co-founder of Good2Go Foods, a company that makes an increasingly wide variety of meals. I didn't come into this um, business uh, through the back, through backcountry or backcountry cooking. I came at it as a chef um, and I was a chef in New York City. I owned a restaurant in New York City. I had um, a Michelin star and three stars from the New York Times. And I was uh, the typical foodie and a sommelier. 
And then I met my boyfriend, who is now my husband, who was the outdoors guy. And he loved his, one of his favorite, favorite um, sports was backcountry hiking. And he took me to REI and suited me up and we went out and I absolutely loved it. I was like, this is amazing. I had never done anything like backcountry hiking. And I loved everything except the food. He, he started off with his rice and beans. We tried some of the meals that were out there and it little, like just a little bit too much sodium for me, not really the flavor profiles that I was looking for. Um, and so I just started making food for us. Um, and I would uh, test stuff on my little tabletop dehydrator. And um, it was, it really was not going to be a business. I, I had left New York city and I was living um, up in Maine and I wanted to actually do either uh, food testing or I also did catering. But once I started making good to go or what we call Jen's dried food, we shared it with friends and people really liked it. And they were like, oh my God, you got to sell this stuff. And just like the AT hikers of the 1920s and the 1930s, Jennifer makes meals she would eat at home. I think like I literally when I'm hiking, I'm like, what would I want? Like, what would I want right now? Uh, and then I'll think of like, okay, this is what I want. And then I'll spend the next three hours deconstructing it and think, will it dry away? Right. How, how would I make it? How, you know, what do I need? Are the, uh, are the ingredients clean? What? And so it's a lot, they've been developed more out of my desire as I'm hiking of what I want to eat. Of course, Jennifer also wanted to cut down on pack weight. So it wasn't just, what do I want and how will I make it? But also, how can I make it light? So there was four years there that we were, we had these packs that were like 50 pounds. I'm not kidding you. And it went, you know, it was way over the top of my head. Because hikers today prepare their freeze-dried or dehydrated meals using lightweight stoves and can generally just pour boiling water into the package, they also don't need to carry a steel pan and a soup pot the way they did 50 or 75 years ago. These two technological changes, lightweight stoves and lightweight tasty meals, have made the backcountry so much more accessible and thus have helped fuel the backpacking boom that we see out on the AT today. Of course, the Appalachian Trail runs through or close to many small towns. One of Benton Mackay's hopes for the AT was that it would fuel economic growth in these towns as hikers stopped in to buy groceries. And it has. But stopping in town doesn't only mean a resupply. It also means town food. Which brings us back to kitchen sink. I would say that I definitely dream about uh, Taco Bell, like, all the time. Ye yesterday I went into uh, Front Royal uh, and walked down to the Taco Bell. They do not serve people without vehicles apparently. So I waited till somebody came out because they're, they're uh, I guess their lobby was closed. I waited for somebody to come out that was in there and um, I asked them if they would drive me around through the drive-thru so that I could get food. And they, they said, yeah, they didn't understand, but they were totally happy with it. And uh, yeah, that's how I got like 
30 or 40 dollars worth of taco bell last night so yeah I, I definitely dream about taco bell a lot i just want to be clear that i am not throwing shade on hikers who gorge on fast food when they pass through town I have certainly been known to eat more than one large cheeseburger at a Wendy's or a Burger King during a long hike. I mean, why not? The reason hikers gorge when they're in town is not just because Taco Bell or Wendy's food is so good. I mean, it's not that good. It's because long-distance backpackers just can't carry enough calories even with freeze-dried meals, to make up for what bodies burn on the trail. It can get so bad that a condition known as hiker hunger can set in. That's what happens when you just can't eat enough to replenish all those calories. I asked Danny to explain how this works. This insatiable hunger is our body playing catch up. So when we're in a, a situation of stress, right, a stressor on our body means that, um, you know, our, our blood sugars are trying to balance themselves um, in a typical situation of a sport or um, playing a game or hiking. That's some that's normal stress on our body that we respond to and our body has that capability of doing. But when it's in fight or flight, meaning I just need to keep this person alive, maybe your body isn't getting enough calories, it drops its metabolic rate. So the way that we avoid the situation will be consistent fueling. And I know this is yeah. something that we just keep saying, but it's so, so important that they're keeping in mind, like, they are supporting their metabolism and muscle mass through what they're eating on these hikes. Right. So it's just going to be so important for them to be eating consistently and enough. Of course, eating consistently is not what happens on the Appalachian trail, which is how hikers end up craving butter or drinking olive oil straight from the bottle. Rachel had a take on how those cravings work. Um, I like to compare cravings to a bow and arrow so you can see me, but the more energy you put into kind of avoiding those cravings, whether it's by choice or not, the amount of energy you put into pulling that bow and arrow back, the farther it's going to go in the opposite direction, right? I think our bodies really respond in that if we're depriving ourselves of a certain food, sodium, carbohydrates, fat, whatever it is, when we have access to that, we're probably going to go a little bit overboard. And that might mean sitting on the side of the road, having two sticks of butter. Um, but I definitely believe that um, we, we can make tend to make up for it if we're not getting what we need. Uh, the tough part of a through hiker is recovery time for a lot of them. So the only time you're getting to recover is when you're sleeping at night. Um, and you know, you're out in the wilderness for months at a time sometimes. So your immunity takes a hit, which is another huge importance of getting these micronutri micronutrients, making sure that your immune system is staying up, um, and helping you with this recovery and rejuvenation night after night. So take advantage of both parts of this, find your micronutrient dense foods, and also take care of these cravings that you're having. Um, maybe not through two sticks of butter, but Hey, whatever works. But does that really work? Through a twist of fate, I recently met that hiker who drank the olive oil straight from the bottle. I was at the Appalachian trail museum in Pine Grove furnace, Pennsylvania, and the new librarian of the museum, Kurt Bodling was helping me find some videos I needed. While we were chatting, it suddenly dawned on me. He's the olive oil guy. I asked him to explain the whole olive oil thing to me. 
I've been interested in nutrition for a long time, healthy eating. Um, been, been a vegetarian for um, over 25 years at this point. I started adding it to um, the, the dehydrated soups that I was cooking in the evening and here. And, and, and then I, I said to myself, um, you know, I could, I could avoid um, uh, having to cook things if I just ate the oil, you know, drank the, <laughs> drank the oil. Um, and and it seemed to work, you know. If you've got you've got a plastic bottle, something that that won't break in your pack, of course, um, and and you're carrying along your your uh, calories in liquid form, um, and and drinking enough, it just it just seemed to make sense. So I started drinking the olive oil directly. I, I don't know, maybe a tablespoon. Um, in in the morning uh, give me a boost to get going um and and in the afternoon when i'd arrive at uh at, at a shelter or um uh, sometimes in the middle of the day i also asked kurt what it was like the first time he tried drinking straight from the bottle um the first time i did i uh it, it wasn't uh fun and just in case you were thinking that drinking straight olive oil is for you, Kurt also has a health and safety warning. You have to be careful not to inhale while you're drinking it. You don't want you don't want it in your lungs. Um, so I, I always take a, a take a breath and then take my olive oil. I like to think of myself as one of those hikers who will eat just about anything as long as it gets me up the trail. But I'm not sure I could eat two sticks of butter or drink olive oil straight from the bottle. But I could definitely take a shot at one of the Appalachian Trail's most beloved traditions, the half-gallon challenge. Like so many traditions, the half-gallon challenge was made up out of whole cloth. In 1980, the managers of the camp store at Pine Grove Furnace State Park, just north of the halfway point of the trail, decided to celebrate hikers reaching that halfway point by creating the Half Gallon Club. Anyone who ate an entire half gallon of ice cream in one sitting was a member of the club. At some point, the club morphed into a challenge, and ever since, hikers have stopped at the store and tried to get down an entire half gallon of ice-cold, buttery, salty, creamy ice cream. That may not sound so hard to you, but if you've been hiking for weeks or months, your stomach is definitely not prepared for all that ice-cold fat. I've watched hikers try the challenge more than once over the past few years. Some succeeded. Some threw in the towel before they finished. And at least two finished, then went back behind the store and threw up. Sorry. I know that's gross. But it happens. While we worked on this episode, there were so many things we wanted to talk about that we couldn't fit in. The shelter where you can order pizza delivery, what exactly dynamite soup is, and so on. We've covered a few more of those stories in our newsletter, so if you want to know more about the history of trail food, go to our website, greentunnel.rrchnm.org, and click the Become a Member link to sign up for the newsletter. 
we never ever share our data with anyone. So the only people you'll hear from is us. In addition to the newsletter, we'll send you some awesome stickers just for signing up. The Green Tunnel is a production of R2 Studios at George Mason University. Today's episode was produced by me, Bridget Bukovich. Abby Mullen is our executive producer, and she also did the audio production for this episode. And as always, Mills Kelly is our host. Our music is performed by Scott Miller of Stanton, Virginia, and Andrew Small and Ashley Watkins of Floyd, Virginia. We have links to Scott, Ashley, Andrew, and their work in the show notes. Before we go, we want to offer a huge thank you to everyone who agreed to be interviewed for this episode. Rachel Artis, Danny Bourgeois, Amy Bentley, Jennifer Schism, Kurt Bolding, and of course, Kitchen Sink. And in case you're wondering, Kitchen Sink not only finished up his 2021 AT through hike, but he's planning on taking on the Continental Divide Trail in 2022 to finish up his Triple Crown. I presume he'll be eating a lot more Cliff Bars. Finally, we want to thank everyone who has been posting about our show and their social media feeds. That really helps us grow our audience. And if you listen to the show from one of the main podcast platforms like Apple or Spotify, leaving us a review is another great way to help support the show. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon. Thank you.